So we come to the end of our summer series on James. Um, suffice it to say, I tried to review first service. That was a mistake. If you want to know what we've talked about through the summer, it's online, okay? But it boils down, you'll appreciate that from me. I know you will. But it boils down to two words, faith acts, faith acts. How do I know my trust, belief in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is real? Well, my life will begin to take on a form, a shape, activity, behaviors, purpose, perspective, direction that is, it's, it's living, it's active. And that's what James as a pastor is writing to people, trying to communicate to them, hey, it's a, yeah, look at what God is doing in your life and what he's going to do in your life. And then it's also to some like, you need to check yourself because there isn't any activity in your life. And if there is not any activity in your life, then James very clearly says, faith without works is dead. It's not faith. It's religion. It's something else. You're not living with Jesus because if you're in Jesus, then you can't help but act. It's this living thing that compels you, inspires, motivates you, energizes you to live this kingdom life, this Jesus life, this biblical life, right? And so faith acts is, is the whole purpose of this book. And I wanted to start today by just sharing with you this little anecdotal story from just happened to us on vacation. It was one of those moments, I wish I had my phone out and would have videoed it, because it's something I'll never forget, but it communicates something James is wanting to share as he sews up this book, and as he's explained the what, what does it look like to have a living faith, but he's going to finish so beautifully, or the Holy Spirit, as he inspired James, finishes so beautifully to tell us, how do I pull that off? How do I do that? I see what you're saying. I have those moments when I read that. I'm like, I need to, I need that. I'm not there. I need to think different. I need to act different. He's showing the, the what, but now he finishes with the how. And part of the how is kind of representing this little story. If, if you know my youngest, Selah, she's a little three-year-old redhead, curly redhead. So cute. She's so sweet. All right? Uh, most of the time. <laughs> Till you tell her no, no, you know, you know how that goes. But, um, and she's such a social person. Like, she'll be in the grocery store, you take her to Walmart, she talks to everybody. Like, she just starts telling them stuff. And sometimes you're like, you're not supposed to tell them that. You know, like, be quiet, because we don't really want strangers to know, you know. Um, so we go to this, this, this place one night. We've eaten dinner. Um, just pictured the golf the beach, that feel, that town feel. We go to this place. It's highly recommended. It's, I think it's called Snowballs. I wasn't thrilled about it because I don't, I'm not big into flavored ice. Like, like I'm going to spend six bucks for you just to flavor ice. You know, it seems like, wow. It was legit good. I understand why it was number one on Yelp in the area, like places you got to go. It was good. I still don't want to spend six bucks on it, but it was good. I'd rather spend six bucks on ice cream. But we go, right? It's got this authentic beach town feel. You know what that is. Little building. It's not, it's not new, but it's, it's just got that feel. And you order, and then you want to walk around back. And there's this covered area, but it's open. So you can feel the breeze, see the water. 
How many of you want to leave right now? You know, 80, 75 degrees is perfect. Light, strong, along, kind of get that, you know, that backyard feel. Um, families are there. We're just eating our uh, flavored ice. It was good. I keep saying that to convince myself it was worth it. It was good, it was good. Um, and I notice Selah kind of starts to move away from our table. And I glance over and I see her do this. She's three. She goes, you ever see your kids do that? It's so cute. And she sees another three-year-old, three or four-year-old, at a, little, a table right across the way. And she goes, and I see the other little girl go, and within a matter of seconds, they start to walk to each other. And they're having this conversation. I'm not sure how that goes with three and four-year-olds. I didn't know, I don't know what they're talking about, and it was probably pretty funny, but, you know, kind of, that's their own language, and, and so we sit there, and, you know, we're there, and that family, their daughter, we don't know who they are, they're probably from Wyoming or something, you don't know, and you're like, you can, you're kind of watching them, and they're kind of watching, we're good parents, right, and they're just chattering away, and, and then we, we need to leave after about, you know, 10 minutes or so, and so I, I, I tell Sailor, I say, hey, Sailor, why don't you say bye to your friend, and we got to go, okay? And they say the same thing, you know, and guess what they do? Yeah. Sailor reaches up, and that girl reaches out. And these two people that haven't even known each other but 10 minutes are embracing. And in that moment, I just thought, that's, that's who we created to be because Selah's still so innocent pure she hasn't been disappointed yet she hasn't been hurt it's like that's so close to original design right until a broken fallen world just starts to beat us up like it does and what does she instinctually do she hugs connection, that community that we were built to experience, we long for. And I thought, man, I didn't grab my phone. Because here she's hugging some girl she's never, we'll never see them again. I don't even know where they lived. I don't know her name. But she shared an embrace. And I'm like, that's how God designed this world to be. And James is going to land on something at the end of this book on how our faith is lived out, how it's acted out, how it's real, that is represented in that picture. This passage is so misrepresented. So many people will think when I start reading this, always oh, going to talk about this subject because that's what they always use when they talk about this subject. You know, the Catholic Church uses this passage for a, a, a key function in their church. And... and um, Let's read it together. And I'm just going to have, I'm going to read it for you. It's right in front of you. I put it in this format. I ask you to pay attention, though, to what I'm reading. That would be good, right? I'm assuming you do that, but I'm asking you to. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone sick? Let him call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them in the name, with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up, and if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. 
Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Remember Elijah the prophet um, in the middle of Ahab and Jezebel's reign. Um, He's the prophet of God in Israel. And in his life, there were so many things that happened where it was him simply depending on God through prayer, and miraculous things happened. Remember, he prayed that it wouldn't rain. And for three and a half years, it didn't. He prayed fire down from heaven on Mount Carmel. Remember, that's the guy we're talking about. It said he prayed that it would not rain, and it didn't rain. Wow, I haven't went there yet. I probably should have this spring, right? Farmers would have appreciated that. But again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. Now, what word stood out when I read these two, these six verses. Was there a word that kept being repeated a little bit in these six verses? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Pray. Pray. James, or the Holy Spirit in his wisdom, has said, I've given you the what, but you know how I want to finish? I want to make sure you understand the how. This is what God is wanting to do in our lives in this active, living, transforming relationship with Jesus. How in the world does that happen? And it's in this simple concept of prayer. See, I kind of, I made them, that's actually banana colored. Did you see banana in that, or did you think yellow? That's banana. Um, now you know. Prayer, prayer, prayed, 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 prayed. Here's an example of prayer, prayed, prayed. What James is trying to say is prayer is the catalyst. Catalyst is that spark word, start word, Genesis. Prayer is the catalyst by which faith gets into action. None of chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5a matter. If you try to live that life without this at the front. Can't do it, won't do it. Prayer is the catalyst by which faith gets into action. You've heard a thousand sermons on prayer. You know the concept, you know the idea. I simply want to just, as I'm moving through this today, remind you, Oxygen is to the body what prayer is to the soul. That's what it is. Uh, Oswald Chambers, my utmost force, highest great devotional writer, probably the most well-known devotional writer in in the world. Um, Special to me, I went to the school he taught at. I didn't go when he taught because he taught there in like 1910. But I love the guy, know his life frontwards and backwards because he was, I'm an alumnus with him, right? He wrote, he wrote this, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Fit us is a word we don't use very much in this context. Prayer does not get us ready to do greater things. Prayer is the greater thing. 
I'm not going to pray so that I can do things. I'm going to pray because it's the greatest thing I could ever do. And out of my praying, God is then going to do incredible things in my life. Out of my praying, I am going to be strengthened, empowered, and capable of living an active faith in Jesus Christ. See, prayer is not a tool to get to where you want to go. Prayer is the enchilada. It's the number one. It's A. My focus is prayer. Out of prayer, boom, I can live the life God has designed for me. Most of us struggle with prayer. I I know that. I've pastored long enough to know. It's an ongoing struggle in my own life to have a vibrant, constant prayer life. As you've heard a lot of sermons, most of them make you feel so guilty, right? And you go home and you just try harder to pray. And I'm just telling you the truth is prayer is the catalyst. Here's some things I just would drop down and say, hey, you and I, figuring out this whole prayer thing, there's some things we, we need to realize. Prayer needs for me to, prayer needs for me to plan for it. Prayer does not happen accidentally. Jesus said, when you pray, get into a what? A closet, right? That's an intentional act. That's not, oh, I found myself in the closet. How did I get here? What am I doing here again? That might have been my grandma. (laughs) It had been very understandable when she was dealing with, you know, stuff. That would have been true. For us, we don't just land in the closet and I don't know what I'm doing. I go in there on purpose. Jesus is saying when you pray, you have to plan for it. Basically what he's saying is on your phone or in your planner, there's a box that needs to be in there, scheduled out. I'm sorry, I can't talk right now. I have an appointment. I'm sorry, I can't get together with you right now. I have a standing appointment. I'm sorry, I can't do the rest of my day's work because I have a standing appointment. What is that appointment? Prayer. How you doing with that? I'm trying, man. It's in my calendar. You call me. If you're dying, that's a different story. There'll be times I'll tell you I'm busy because guess what? I have an appointment. I have an appointment with Jesus Christ in prayer. And prayer lives do not happen unless they are planned for. You don't just accidentally stumble in to having a prayer life. It's intentional. It's a part where it's disi- I discipline my mind from mental drift. If you've ever prayed, you know this is true. I walk a lot of times in here and pray. It's good these cards are here because it's amazing when you start praying how everything else in your life becomes crystal clear. Everything you're supposed to take care of that day, that week, for the next year it seems like, just comes to your mind so clear. Like any other time you can't think of it, it's you start praying all of a sudden you're like, oh, I got to do this, this, I got to talk to this person, I got to take care of this, I got to pay this bill. And all of a sudden I'm walking around this room and I'm not praying now. I'm planning Right? Everybody knows what this is. So easy. Listen, prayer is 
It's an intentional planned for activity that requires our minds to be singularly focused on what we're praying for and who we're praying to. Third thing is having constant prayer partners. Be around people who know how to pray, who believe in prayer, and who pray with you. There's nothing like the energy um, that comes from spending time with someone who says, hey, let's pray about that. Nothing like it. And we become who we surround ourselves with. Do you surround yourself with people who believe in and practice the power of prayer? Have constant prayer partners all over the place. Use the scriptures as the basis of my prayers. So often prayer can just be crazy. Like I need this and I need that and I, I want this and I want that. I spent 20 minutes, you know, praying to become a millionaire. No. But you know, you start to pray and it's, where Jesus provided a model, when you pray, pray, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. So I'm already praying about the hallowed Father. I'm thinking about who he is. I'm, I'm allowing my heart and mind to be lifted up to him. This is prayer. And then I'm thinking about his kingdom. How does that happen? How does it work? How am I involved? His kingdom and his will being done. I'm not asking for anything yet right and allow the scriptures to be the basis of your prayer life and the last one is pray until you pray that sounds really really profound but if you've ever prayed and you've ever experienced pray how god prayer how god has designed it to be there is a sense where i move into the presence of God in prayer. Where it's not just some ritual or routine or structure. I've disciplined myself. I've planned for it. I say my thing and pray. The old timers said this. Pray until you've prayed through. Have you ever prayed through on anything? Some of you are looking at me like you are a weird guy. I'm going to tell you something. It is so real. You can get to a point where you're praying about something that you know the presence of God is there with you. He's heard. He's, there's fellowship. There's communion. There's peace. It's what Paul says when he says, don't be anxious for anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the what? The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard, will come into your heart and your life. And, you know, I've been fortunate in my life to watch parents model this. People in my life model this I went to church with. Where I have known, I've seen, experienced, they prayed through on something. They prayed until they prayed. They prayed until they had heard from God. Now, a lot of times they didn't know what that meant. God has given me the confidence, the assurance that he's going to work it out. I don't know how he's going to work it out, but I've walked out of my prayer room with a peace. And I don't have to doubt anymore. I'm not living wondering anymore. I don't know how God's going to do it, but I know he's going to do it. That, my friends, is the 
the blessing that God gives us in prayer. He comes close to us. He witnesses with our spirit. He gives us confidence and peace and assurance and rest. And I want to tell you what you need in your life. That. That's what I need in my life. And when I don't have that, I am a scattered, fearful, anxious. What are some words my wife might use? We used to sing the old hymn, Every, Take Everything to God in Prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we did not carry everything to God in prayer. And Paul says, hey, you want this to work? You want to get through what you're going through? You got to be people who believe in and practice the power of prayer. And so how does that work? How does he finish up? He reminds him of some things. He says, listen, are any of you suffering hardship? It's kind of a rhetorical question because he's talked about people encountering hardship in this book. They're not, it's not going easy for them. They're persecuted. They're struggling. He said, are any of you, you know, suffering hardship? Duh. Pray. He used this word, continually plead. Are any of you happy? Well, then sing praises. Praise is a, a part of prayer. It, it becomes a part of the internal life of the soul. And he says, listen, in everything, there's an interior life that you have that propels every kind of activity that you have. And when things are going good, you're full of praise. When things are going tough, you're praying uh, and probably praising But he says, don't forget that God is the one you're always needing to depend on. In the good, you're praying. Or in the bad, you're praying. In the good, you're praising. It's kind of a praise. It's a prayer language here of praise, of thanksgiving, of adoration to God. And I would remind you that praying causes perseverance. That's what he's saying. He's reminding them. You want to be someone who doesn't quit? It will call. It will demand that you be a person that prays. He moves on, he says, and this is where everybody gets all, what's this mean? What are we supposed to do? Are you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. If you committed any sins, you will be forgiven. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be honest with you. I've read a lot of scholars about this. And you know what? A lot of scholars come to the conclusion you're not quite sure all that this means. I'm going to leave the door open. I believe it means both physical sickness and emotional, spiritual weariness. Because the words here, the Greek words you hear, used here are used for those two things other places. What I do believe he's trying to emphasize is that when we are struggling, we're suffering physically or from weariness of the soul. What do we need to do? What's our first response? Prayer. And what so, hap- what so often happens with us when we are physically struggling or spiritually and emotionally weak, it's even hard for us to even pray. You ever been there? Like, I don't even have the strength to pray. I'm hurting so bad, all I can think about is my pain. I'm suffering so bad. I'm so 
discouraged and weak. I can't. And what does he say happens? That when this happens, call the leaders in your church and have them come and pray for you. Why? Because we are convinced as Jesus people that there is power in prayer. We are a praying people. It's not come and have your answer tell you, your pastor tell you what to do. No, it's come and have your pastor pray for you. Now those things might follow, but the primary thing that the leadership of a church should be doing for its people who are, who are weary and without strength, maybe physically due to sickness or emotionally and spiritually due to hardships, the primary thing that the leadership of the church should do for you is come alongside you and pray for you. I did notice something here. It says, if any of you are, let them call. Let them call. For some reason, people think that like I have, what is that, mind reading? I don't know if you're sick. Like, I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook either. I don't know if you're sick. Please don't shoot me if I didn't pray with you because you were sick. And I didn't know it. I don't know how many times I found out later, hey, yeah, I had a surgery, really. Would have loved to have prayed with you. That's, some of you don't want that. I get that. Please, but let them call. Call us. We want to pray with you. That's what we're called to do. But we can't do it unless we know. And don't rely on Betty told John and John told Sally. And then Sally posted it on Facebook. I'm trying to not do Facebook very much. Okay? That's a sideline. I didn't even say that in first service. What am I doing? I don't know. I just read that today. Anyway, commentators talking about it. Are you guys alive today? <laughs> Prayers bring strength. This is where the major part of what I want to talk about for just a moment is. Confess your faults one to another. So prayer causes perseverance. Prayer brings strength. And he says this, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous man has great power and produces wonderful results. And this is what I want to share with you, which I think is so powerful. Prayer gives healing. But what kind of prayer gives healing? It's prayer that's in the context of somebody confessing to another person, looking them in the eye, telling them their sin, and asking that they pray for them. It's in that context of prayer that healing happens. And I would submit to you that the scriptures teach that it's only in that context. If you want to be healed, it won't be on your own. God didn't design us this way. Just as a three-year-old wants to hug another three-year-old, we inherently find that we were meant to be in community together. And Paul says, or James says, that in the context of faith, working, acting, this is true of our lives. We are people that confess to one another our sins, our faults, our shortcomings. 
and we pray for each other so that we may be healed. It was in the book, The Art of the Public Grovel, Susan Beyer offers a helpful distinction. An, apolis, an apology is an expression of regret. I am sorry. A confession is an admission of fault. I'm sorry because I did wrong. I sinned. Recent NPR interview, neuroscience uh, David Eagleman said this. You have competing populations in your brain. One part that wants to tell something and one that doesn't. You see, there's a real psychological battle that goes on in our brains. Especially when we have certain behaviors that we see and understand to be wrong. That we don't like about ourselves. And he says that what it does is it creates a continual struggle within yourself. When you live wrong, you create this competing dynamic in your brain. The internal dissonance and lack of sense of personal integrity is draining. It's stressful. It means your brain will register the fact that there are increased levels of stress hormone going through your bloodstream as a result of this struggle to keep your secret, to not be known, to put out the best face possible, to not let anybody really see who you are what you struggle with. Are you getting my point? This guy's not even a Christian. But this is where science is catching up to the Bible. When you live that way, when you do not allow yourself to be known, your brain marinates in stress hormones. It's keeping the secret. And what happens is the effect, it causes impairment in your health, and well-being. This is what David said. Remember when he sinned with Bathsheba and he killed her husband? That whole year, this is his psalm he wrote from this. He said, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. He wasn't doing very well. In other places, he actually referenced it. It was like he just felt sick all the time inside. It's a day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed when somebody did James 5.16 and confronted him and said, what you're doing is not right. And he confessed his fault to him. He said, I confess my sins to you and stop trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. He forgave me, and all my guilt is gone. They did a study at the University of Texas where they used blood tests and EEG measurements to measure what physically happens to people who confess. Here's what they found. That when things were confessed, there were tangible health benefits, both physical and mental. It found out that it, only, it not only improved relationships in regards to depth and intimacy, but better sleep and an improved immune system. Basically, the result of this study by the University of Texas recently was this. Don't hold on to secrets. Come into the light because confession brings about deeper, more intimate relationships. And this makes you a healthier person. I read about a pastor named Max. I want you to get a picture of this. This is a pastor named Max. He said, ever since my high school buddy and I 
drank ourselves sick with a case of quartz. I have liked beer. Out of the tab, keg, bottle, frosty mug, it doesn't matter to me. I like it. I also know that alcoholism haunts my family ancestry. I have early memories of following my dad through the halls of a rehab center visiting my sister, or his sister, my aunt. Similar things have happened, repeated themselves with my relatives for decades. Beer doesn't mix well with my family DNA. So at the age of 21, I stopped doing it. But then a few years back, Pastor Max, he said, something resurrected my cravings. At some point, I reached for a can of brew instead of a can of soda. I know some of you think I'm going somewhere with this. Like, I'm not, right? Just chill out. The point is something bigger. And I popped the top, and I was a beer fan again. I once in a while became once in a week, and then once a day beer fan. I kept my preferences to myself. No beer at home, lest my daughters think less of me. No beer in public. Who knows might see me, Pastor Max. None at home, none in public leaves only one option. Convenience store parking lots. For about a week, I was that guy in the car drinking out of a brown paper bag. I don't know what started my cravings, but I remember what stopped me. En route to speak at a men's retreat, I I stopped for my daily purchase. En route, I walked into the convenience store with a beer pressed against, I walked out of the convenience store with a beer pressed against my side, scurried to my car for fear of being seen, opened the door, climbed in, and opened the can, and then it dawned on me. I had become the very thing I hate. A hypocrite. A pretender. A two-faced person acting one way, living another. I had written sermons about people like me. Christians who care more about integrity, or more about appearance than integrity. It wasn't the beer, but it was the cover-up that nauseated me. And so what did Pastor Max Licato do? You recognize Max Licato, right? I'm sure you read one of his books. Just recently, what did Max Licato do? I threw the can in the trash. I got in my car and I prayed. Then I scheduled a visit with church elders. This is Max Licato, one of the most visible authors in all of Christianity, the most visible, I think who was doing something no one knew anything about. And it really didn't feel like he was, okay? I didn't embellish or downplay my actions. I just confessed them. What a humbling thing to do. And in turn, they pronounced forgiveness over me. One of the elders reached across the table and put his hand on my shoulder and said something like this. How you're living's not right. It's not good. What you're doing tonight is right. God's love is great enough to stop you from living that kind of lifestyle. He said, after talking to the elders, I spoke to my church. At a midweek gathering, I once again told the story. I apologized for my duplicity and requested the prayers of the congregation. So I'm calling a midweek service this week? No. What followed was an hour of powerful confession. When I opened up, all of a sudden, 
something broke loose. And people began to confess. And guess what happened? The church was strengthened, not weakened, by honesty. And this is why Max Licato, pastor, author, and only the way he can says this, confession does for the soul what preparing the land does for the field. Before the farmer sows the seed, he works the acreage, removing the rocks and pulling the stumps. He knows that seed grows better in prepared land. Confession is the act of inviting God to walk over the acreage of our hearts. There's a rock of greed over here. I can't seem to budget myself. There's a tree of guilt near the fence. Its roots are long and deep. And can I show you some dry soil? It, the seed will never live in that shallow, hardened, dusty, dry soil. God's seed grows better if the soil of the heart is cleared. And you know how it's cleared? Confession. Confession to God Almighty himself, but confession to your brother and sister. Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another. There's a lot of organizations and things out there that have good AA and good steps. Don't get me wrong. But one thing a lot of them lack is it's you do this, I do this, and we just love the fact that we live in this misery together. The words James, the Holy Spirit uses here, confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you might be what? Healed. Changed. And what I'm about ready to say might be some of the most important words you've ever heard. Some of you may have been a church, attended church longer than I've been alive. But this verse and other verses in the New Testament, all the one another's, we one another, one another. The reason why you've never got spiritual victory and you've never lived at the level that you know God is calling to you is because you've never looked one of your brothers in the eye and confessed and bared your soul to one another and said, this is who I am. This is what I struggle with. These are the motives that I have so often. This is what I'm tempted to do. This is what I'm, I, I, I'm greedy. I love money. And I need to tell somebody because I know it's not right, but it, it dictates the way I live my life. And I need to look at somebody and say those words and realize I'm looking in somebody else's eyes and they now know. In my own life, the most powerful moments of healing that have ever taken place for me was in a small group of guys where I could bear my soul to them. Where I just got honest about everything in my life. God already knew it. But the way he set up his kingdom is part of how we spur one another on to holy living is we keep each other accountable. Because it's sure often with God to kind of push that, oh God, I know. 
Now, you're going to be responsible for it in one day, but God's unseen. It's easy to quench the spirit. And when you look in somebody's eyes, your brother, and say, I have this tendency. I have these self-esteem issues. I have this self-image problem. I have this proneness to bitterness, resentment, anger, jealousy, envy. There is nothing like dragging that out in the light. Healing starts. And I want to be honest, in my own life, I hit a wall where I continue to struggle with stuff until I found some believers that I trusted. That's important. That you have confidence in. That you know we're close. And I looked at him and said, this is what I struggle with. I need you to pray for me. In that praying, I need you to keep me accountable. And James says that the only way that faith lives is when you're that kind of person that finds it where you're finding people where you're confessing. It's not a priest in a, in a stall in a church. Confess your faults to each other and pray for each other. You love to hear this, don't you? I would say this, this little phrase. You won't win over it until you share about it. A big thing in our culture is pornography, correct? I'm just going to use that illustration because we all know what that is. And we realize that the church isn't talking about it, the world's talking about it. How destructive, how prevalent, how many percentage of websites are pornographic in nature. It's overwhelming, right? Big deal, we all understand it. You know what they've realized that the only way to get over being addicted to pornography? Well, go pray and ask God to forgive you. You know what a porn addict is doing? They're praying and ask God to forgive them, then they're going and doing it. They're praying and ask God to forgive them, then they're going and doing it. There's no change. The power of this verse is what they've realized. This is Christian data. That when I get in a group and look at somebody and said, I looked at porn this week. I need you to keep me accountable. I need you to ask me if I'm doing it. I need to stop this, and I need somebody to come alongside me. That's the way to victory. Maybe you, maybe it's not for pornography. That's just a kind of a classic. Maybe you're struggling with depression. Maybe it's anxiety that's overwhelmed you and is altering the rhythm of your life. Maybe it's fear that's controlling your decision making. Maybe it's bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment that's eating you alive. Maybe it's impulses, behaviors that you just can't seem to control. You know it's right and keep doing it. You're caught. Maybe it's self-esteem or self-image issues that are causing you to behave in just destructive ways that are killing you. Uh, the only way to kill darkness is to drag it into the light. You will not win on your own. You're going to have to read the last few verses of James. You can figure it out. I'm going to end there. Because James says that a part of a living act of faith is being willing to be a confessing person. Not only to God, but to each other. And so I would encourage you as we finish this book. If you are isolated, if you don't have somebody that you bear your soul to, you are not going to win. You are going to struggle. 
and you will not be who God intended for you to be. Those are some strong words. I'm telling you, based from every leader that I respect and know, they will tell you the only reason they got to where they are is because of this dynamic. They got real with some people, and those people held them accountable and kept them in a support group. And a, every guy, every well-known pastor you know, there's a Christian, this is a Christian principle that is so powerful that once it starts happening, it can't be stopped. Healing starts, powerful things happen, lives are changed, things are broken down. The church is a place that's supposed to be open and vulnerable and transparent, and it's okay to not be perfect because you're not perfect anyway. And this should be an environment where you can find relationships and people where you can get real with and find the support you need. Can I get an amen? 11.54, I blew past everything I should have. I didn't even finish my sermon, but I think this is that important of a principle. That's why we do small groups. That's why we do men's ministry. That's why we're trying to figure out things in so many ways, because you need to get real with other people. Because if it's just you and God, I guess if you're on a deserted island, you can make it. God will give you enough grace. You know what he has given you? He's given you other believers. That's the grace that he's given you. He's going to look at you and say, I expected you to do better. I gave you this group to jump into to let them hold you accountable. Because you found it so easy to say, oh God, I'm sorry, I'll do better next time. It's so easy for us not to have the fear of the Lord really in our life. He uses the church to keep us on track. I need to stop. I'll go till 1230. I love this. I need this. I've experienced this in a life-transforming way, and I want you to, too. Father, go with us. Help us to be a confessing people. Find people to open up to, be real with, and find power and healing through your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you for your patience.